MaskLab is a hub for multimodal and digital scholarship that explores the relationship between media and our changing society. We support, curate, and create media intended to spark dialogue and social change, and the development of pedagogy that uses media to foster civic engagement. MathLab is located in the Communication, Media, and Learning Technology Design Program at Teachers College, Columbia University. One day, a, a student came up to me and asked me um, about my heritage and my family. And I, I was like, um, but I don't know. I, I'm white. I'm European. And they're like, what? No, you're not. And I was like, what? What do you mean? They're like, you're not white. And I was like, nope, yes, I am. And they're like, no, no, you're just like light skinned. And it led to this whole conversation around. We were watching between people uh, who are really well dressed walk around in running shoes outside. And then they'd get to their place of work and take off their running shoes and put really nice shoes on and enter. And for them, this was like the like such a friction because they were like, no, you asked the student a question before realizing that they didn't, they didn't communicate in English. Their peers said, oh, he doesn't speak English. And I said, oh, so who speaks to him? They're like, nobody. Welcome to the Big Apple Educator Podcast, where we dive into the unique experiences of being a teacher in New York City. Teaching in the city that never sleeps is not easy feat. From navigating the hustle and bustle of the city streets to managing a diverse classroom of students from all walks of life, being a teacher in New York City comes with its own set of challenges and rewards. In this podcast, we will hear from educators sharing their personal stories and insights on what makes teaching in New York City so unique. So why not sit back, relax, and join us as we explore the one-of-a-kind world of being a teacher in one of the world's most diverse cities. This is Big Apple Educator. I'm John from Teachers College, Columbia University. Uh, my name is Natalie Wright, and I'm a master's student in the History and Education program at Teachers College. Um, I'm originally from California, where I taught uh, environmental science and outdoor education, especially at uh, our student farm. And uh, since moving to New York City, I taught at a school in Brooklyn, and now I currently work at a school in Harlem. Excited to be here. Um, well, first, thanks for asking me to do this. Um, I think one part of teaching in New York City that is really different and unique to specifically the area is just how dense it is. There are not only so many schools, um, so many public schools, so many charter schools, so many private schools, um, but the neighborhoods are so densely packed too. And so you're forced to interact with different people than you would in uh, other cities that are more spread out, you know, suburbia and urban dense settings that have a bigger contrast in walls, where in New York City, there's a little bit more blending, especially with the great public transportation. Um, and so in schools, you would expect that to reflect, but often in public schools, there is this continued segregation, especially in New York City, as it being the largest and most segregated public school system in the U.S. And so um, I think my role as a teacher, I try to explore that in making it 
something that is talked about and not hidden in the classroom. Like, okay, yes, we live in this super diverse city. How come we're not seeing that in classrooms? Um, so that's that's both uh, a, a challenge, but also an opportunity to have these conversations that I think are important, um, which is very unique to being a teacher in New York City. If you compare the demographics of student population in New York City public schools compared to the demographic of New York City's population, they do not match up. So there's this this multi-layer and I, I, young people are smart, like students are aware. They can tell when they're in a classroom and everyone looks like them, yet they're walking on the street and that's not the case. You know, um, I think having conversations about it is really important and of course that's not a solution, but it yeah, education is a means to, um, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, to ignite passion for people to care about these issues that are going on. And when I first moved to New York City, I worked at a school in Brooklyn uh, near Canarsie. So it's about as far east as you can get. And the student population there was um, 100% black or Puerto Rican. Um, so being a white woman in this space, um, I didn't look like any of the students. And um, one day a, a student came up to me and asked me, um, about my heritage and my family. And I, I was like, um, I don't know. I, I'm white. I'm European. And they're like, what? No, you're not. And I was like, what? What do you mean? They're like, you're not white. And I was like, nope. Yes, I am. And they're like, no, no, you're just like light skin. Like that's, you know, like I have an auntie that's light skin. I have a friend who's light skin. Like that's just what it is. And it led to this whole conversation around the difference between like ancestry and skin color and race in New York City and how that reflects in schools and that experience really led me to think about like wow okay so these are elementary schools minds interpreting race in their neighborhood and in schools and what that even means and because I was in their school in their neighborhood I couldn't have been white in their eyes there's no way I could have been and uh, part of that, too, is to go into, like, commuting. Like, all of the teachers in the school were commuting hours to get into the school, whereas the kids crossed the street to get into the school. And so it led into all these conversations about um, why why do we have to travel a long way? Why don't teachers just live in their neighborhood? Is that the case in other schools? And it just sparked all these uh, questions among the students that I think led to, like, really healthy conversations. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So the other teachers are most of the teachers also white or they're also, like... Um, I would say it, it, it was not mostly white. Uh -huh. Um, there were, I would say actually the majority of students in that school were black women. That was the most predominant, um, like race group among teachers, but they don't live in the neighborhood. No. See, so that's, that's the other layer, right? Of uh -huh. class within it. So both of our principal and our assistant principal were both incredibly um, competent and intelligent black women who were not on the same in from the same class as like economic classes students and so there were some tensions um, between paraprofessionals students pa parents and families and the administration and goals and what was the desired outcomes of the school have you noticed any changes of their behavior or their ideas towards race after you have the conversation all this that's a good question i mean it's hard because i don't i don't think that they perceived me any differently um i didn't feel like suddenly they treated me differently but i also this was like 
eight months in just spending every day with them all, all day. I mean, during the day and after school. So, you know, that's a different kind of relationship. I will say that um, I think there was a lot of questioning among the peers. Suddenly they're asking like, all right, wait, let's compare my arm to your arm. Are you white? Like they didn't, there was still this degree of what is whiteness? What does whiteness mean? Um, what is blackness? What does it mean to be um, a part of black culture, but then also have light skin? What does it mean to be Dominican? What does it mean if I have dark skin, speak Spanish, but my brother or sister has light skin and speaks Spanish? You know, there's all these layers to identity. And I, I think that that is a cool opportunity to be able to celebrate and talk about it but also understand that um we all have unique identities and backgrounds and that's something that should be shared and talked about this is there isn't this black or white and then natalie is going to share about how social media and spatial factors influence students self-perception and their interactions with the world around them Second graders, first graders were on TikTok. Like everyone, all of the elementary school students were on TikTok and Instagram. And a lot of them would say to me, like, yeah, I know I'm from the ghetto. Like, I know I see it on TikTok. Yep, I see this is how I'm supposed to be acting. This is where I'm from. And I think that not that that ha hasn't happened prior. I think it, it doesn't take a lot for students to become self-aware just walking out the street in New York City. But East New York is really unique because it is, it is far more isolated than other neighborhoods um, within New York City. It, there's one train that really goes in there and often it will only go half the way but, and then we'll have like construction or sorry, we're not running into Manhattan and you have to take a bus and another train and a thing. So it's, it's far, it's a little bit harder to access. Um, and so without social media, I think that you might have a longer period of time before the kids become self-aware of their neighborhood. But with social media, that has changed, definitely. Um, and so that's where I think class plays a bigger role of understanding of, um, you know, class hierarchy compared to racial hierarchy and how they intersect and overlap. Yeah. There is this layer for sure that the school I was at there was more isolated due to the access to public transportation and strategic manipulation of housing and redlining to make it so they're all in this area, right? Concentrated there. But you also see that in other areas in New York too, like Harlem, that's a, a classic example. But Harlem has a far different relationship to the rest of the city. And um, I would say it has a longer history because Harlem has been a thriving black neighborhood for far longer than East New York. East New York primarily had an influx of black and Puerto Rican families coming in, not by choice, but due to um, closure of many um, housing projects in Brownsville and neighboring areas, white flight from immigrants in East New York. So then black and Puerto Rican families were pushed into East New York. So it was far less of a choice, although similar white flight situations were happening in Harlem. There was like more, uh, there was a longer history there of um, of just great black minds and thinkers uh, going on. But also Harlem's in Manhattan. That is a very different contrast than any other neighborhood um, because of that. I mean, you take the train and you cross the street and you're at Columbia. 
you know, you, you're surrounded by different types of people and class and um, you, you become hyper aware. And I, I was thinking about this because I, I also work at a, um, or a middle school in Harlem um, now. And I would, right before the holidays in science class, the kids were voting on a movie to watch and they wanted to watch Home Alone. Um, the, I forget if it was one or two, the, the Christmas one in New York City. I think it might have been Home Alone too. And they were laughing at how the movie portrayed um, New York City and the holidays because he's staying at like some five star hotel across the street from Central Park. And they're like, why are there so many taxis? Like, why is this going up? Like, there were all these um, observations that they had about the movie. And what that movie came out in like early 2000s, maybe late 90s. So that was before TikTok, right? There's all these other forms of media that have always existed that I think have made it so students become hyper aware, but also just day to day lives. And so even if you are are pushed out to a neighborhood where you're not supposed to have access to the rest of the city, um, I, it still happens. The dense living conditions of New York City often limit access to outdoor spaces, leading to a lack of exposure to nature for many kids. However, there are still many community gardens and urban indoor gardens in the city which offer opportunities for kids to connect with nature. Despite these challenges, what's more important is to give children the opportunity to explore and play, whether it's in a physical playground or is in the nature. So in California, I specifically worked in rural um, farm communities in Northern California. So a lot of these kids, um, it was also a Title I school. So both in New York, and in California, I was working at Title I schools, meaning that they don't have, they get um, additional funding. Um, but one was in really rural communities where a lot of them have a lot of exposure to farm life and other um, different kind of labors going on. And there's a lot more emphasis on nature. And um, in New York City, it was, it was different because it was a formal public school um, teaching position, whereas what I was doing in California was specifically environmental science education. So it was finding ways to get kids excited about learning and talking about climate change and environmental sustainability, um, which was really fun <laughs> and I think super important. But that dynamic of being a supporting role to an already existing teacher in class and setting where you can come in and come out is so different than spending every day in a classroom setting. So I think um, how they interact with the world is really different. I mean, one of the biggest examples I was like my first shock when I came to New York City was the school that I was teaching at um, had construction going on and had construction going on for the past five years. And there was no projected or yeah, projected timeline to end. So the students weren't allowed to use the playground outside because it was considered dangerous. So the students did not see the sun or go outside at all, all day or all day after school. That blew my mind to contrast to California, where the area I was in, it didn't snow. So we have sunshine more or less year round. It's seasonal, but it's still, you can be outside year round. And there's land because it's rural. So kids are running around and playing and digging and bringing me worms to look at. And we're going to farms. And that was so different um, 
in contrast. And so that was one of the biggest, I would say, like shocks immediately. But um, yeah. Do you find it is a general thing in university? Like I know we're doing gardening right now and it also has to be indoor gardening. Yeah. Like, but in California, you could have a farm. Yeah. Yeah, it's different, right? I mean, it, it it's a big generalization, California versus New York City, because New York City land-wise is so much smaller than the entire state of California, right? Um, I mean, maybe if you wanted to do a comparison between, like, L.A. and New York, that you might or might be a little bit more similarity there in able to being compared. But even then, L.A. is far more spread out, Um there's different cultural differences going on there, different histories. Um, and New York City is still, still far more densely compact. There's just so many people living in such a small area. Um, but what I will say is that New York City, I've been actually pretty surprised by the amount of um, community gardens and urban indoor gardens and hydroponic gardens that have been set up by community members across New York City. I think there's a huge push for that. Um, in ways that I didn't know about before coming here. So I was pleasantly surprised to see that. In California, I mean, California is the number one agriculture producer for the country. So there's a lot of land there, but there's also a lot of city too. You have this contrast there. Um, just like in New York State, I mean, uh, not that they're producing crazy amounts of ag, but if you go up to New York State, hardly anyone in New York City does that. Right. If you're living in New York City, this doesn't mean you're going upstate. But there's tons of land up there. It's green. There's mountains. There's lakes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and so you can you can get that in California too, though, where where students are living in a urban setting and you know know that nature exists nearby within the state, but they're not going to it. They don't have access to it. You know, the levels of um, uh, diminished access due to poverty is still clear in both settings. I think that many kids are willing to try something new. Um, I had students at um, the school I was teaching at in Brooklyn who had an aunt or an uncle or a family member who lived upstate. Um, and so they would they would go with their family and see them um, and get to spend time up there. I wouldn't say the average student in my class was hiking or experiencing nature by any means, but um, I, I, I wouldn't say that they disliked it either. I mean, the at the end of the year, we were able to go on our first field trip post-COVID, and um, are we really like post-COVID, that whole conversation too, but since we were allowed to go on field trips, um, and we walked the Brooklyn Bridge and played at the park after, and the kids, love playing at the park rolling in the grass digging in the bushes they love that um i think kids like to explore they like to use see the world as their playground and so if there is a physical playground built or not if you're in nature and in woods there's always ways to play and discover um and so i yeah i find it i was it made my heart hurt to know that i couldn't take the kids out more um, then I thought they should be able to go out uh, just because of the scaffolding. You know, a lot of their lunchtime recess was in the auditorium watching movies. And I, the last thing I think they need is more screen time. Um, but I'm hoping that once the 
scaffolding's done and they can actually access, there is a beautiful playground and a big park next to the school. They just uh, weren't allowed to use it. My name is Lucius Wan Zhou. Uh, I'm a doctoral student and research assistant and teacher at uh, Teachers College uh, here with Columbia University. And uh, I've been teaching for, um, I think, coming up on 20 years. Uh, so I taught in Deaf Ed in the Bay Area, then uh, mainstream elementary school, and then taught high school in Japan. I taught uh, adult education here, international ed in New York, back in Japan for 10 years in university, and now back here teaching uh, at graduate school. So I think the unique thing about being a teacher in New York City, and I'll pull on my uh, memories from, so this is about, about 15 years ago when I was teaching international school um, at Kaplan. And so these were international students from all around the world, ranging from 16 to 70 or more. Uh, and the class was amazing. I mean, it was all people wanting to be here. It was, they were studying language. And in that room, on a lucky week, it'd be 15 students and maybe 12 countries represented in that space. So that was amazing. And, you know, they're having all the frictions of travel and visiting and short-term and long-term visits. Um, but the amazing thing was, it was in Midtown, so I kind of had the weakest campus of them all. There was a campus uh, in the Empire State Building. There was one in the Lower East Side. Mine was on uh, in Midtown. Uh, so, but when we would start talking about people and start talking about how to think through people and culture, uh, not that it's the best window, but it is a huge place to go people watching. We would walk down to Times Square and, you know, and they'd sit on the red stairs and they'd talk about people and they'd talk about how an understanding of different people from different places and what uh, a place that is common for all people to visit but not to live in was like. Um, so it was amazing. And it was amazing to watch, you know, all these people questioning their own world's colliding in a space that was so new and sharing that kind of collision with each other. Um, I did a thing with students to kind of work through this because students were coming and going so often, I would have students keep journals, but they would keep them namelessly. And so when they'd leave, they'd leave the journal and then another student would pick up that journal and they'd kind of catch up on all the thoughts that someone else had had in that city. And so I think it's, you know, that's something very unique here is it's all about sharing story in this city. And it's, you know, there's, it's such a thriving place to share story and everybody's wants to be vocal about it, which is pretty neat. That connection is everybody wants to have it. That same class, um, we had an amazing moment where they used to, they had this cool uh, thing called Key to the City. This was, I think in probably 2011. And you could go down to Times Square. I think there was another place, but you could go down with somebody else or go alone and you'd get in a line and you'd get up to the front and they had an altar and you'd give the key to the city to someone. 
and uh, it was a small key, like a square key. It had a hand giving a key to a hand, even carved on it. And that key would open up like a hundred different hidden places all over New York City. It would like somewhere on, it would open up like the closet on Washington Bridge and it would open up like a closet in the Met. And it was just all about all these places that you could have access to that everybody deserves the key to the city. So I think that's one thing that's super unique to uh, teaching in New York. Being back here in graduate school, I think there's less opportunity. I think that, you know, um, being in an international school like that, everybody was excited to explore. And I think in graduate school, we're, very, we're exploring not so much the physical as the abstract. And so I think that happens a bit less. That's a really interesting story. I actually curious about because you, um, you mentioned you were teaching in Japan before, and maybe back then you were an international teacher in that context. But here you are teaching a lot of the international students, and you are as a more native and local person. Um, so, how do you feel about this difference? It's a it's a really good point. So, um, when I taught between deaf ed and mainstream education, I was so curious about the way all the friction and um, access and all these elements were manifesting in these two places. So it made me wonder, like, how are other places in the world? And I was quite young then, wondering how other, other educational systems think this through. And I just was so curious. And so my first time around in Japan, I was teaching high school. And uh, there weren't, I think it was just uh, myself and there was a French teacher from France. Um, so there was a little bit of access to the outside world, but I think it was really heavy on our shoulders that we represented it. Um, and then coming back here when my class was so diverse, it was amazing. I could ask something as simple as like, what do you do when you lose a tooth? And everybody, there were so many stories and so many thoughts. And even I loved the friction in the class. There was a heavy judgment of people in the class and it really shocked me and so I started doing something simple that having students share their educational history and talking about like what was kindergarten like for them what was first grade like for them what was high school like for them and they started realizing I think again I'm just an observer but it felt the room became so much warmer because they could be like well you were taught in a really different way and they started valuing each other's way of thinking so that friction led to like a, a quite uh, an opening to understanding that there's so many different ways to approach and understand things or even at least move through them. And so when I went back to Japan, this was a major concern of mine because I was teaching cultural studies. And as a, as a professor, there was at least 75 of us from different countries. So that was wonderful. So the representation was amazing. So for students, we weren't like it wasn't on our shoulders to represent something that we could unfairly represent. Uh, we were just another person from a, from another place opposed to what is that place about. But with those students, I did, you know, especially with cultural studies, and I taught some classes about subculture and, you know, food anthropology, those kind of courses. It was really about exposure hypothesis, which is now called exposure theory. But the whole idea is just that when you're exposed to things that are quite different from your world in not uh, like hyper tense 
situations, then people start to grow with understanding and interest with other differences. So for example, like school integrations is a perfect example of that, like a, a lack of exposure before and then what happened afterwards. And so for me, I was concerned about, can you do this um, remotely? Like, can you do this through media? Can you do this through trying new things that represent another culture? Can you do this from listening to music from another place? And so obviously it's not like the full embodiment of it, but does it start to work that through? And so, uh, yeah, I, I really liked the work of Susan Fisk. And so they were looking at like, that quite heavily in social neuroscience. And so that's when I started doing it. Um, and for me, when I was working through students with that, it was really important that um, they weren't just cultural relativists. Like I didn't want them to be like, everything's okay. I wanted them to, if they felt something like, oh, this is really strange to me, or I really don't like this. I wanted them to acknowledge that and then start questioning what that was and that's what i could do with students here and i think it really started he heavily hap happening here like i remember a student who came to me uh and he's like i'm so glad i had your class this week because last night i know i would have gotten a very serious fight at this bar and they had this moment where they were like in the heavy confrontation with this person but they started questioning the the what's the circumstance that led to this? What's the situation that led to this? And this is with even alcohol involved, you know, it's a bar. Like, it's like, obviously they don't have their wits about them, but it was that class that they started to question, you know, there's a situation here, there's a moment of perspective and shift. And so I, that was really moving for me. And it was even small mundane stuff. Like I remember another student talking about, like they were watching people uh, who are really well-dressed, walk around in running shoes outside, and then they'd get to their place of work and take off their running shoes and put really nice shoes on and enter. And for them, this was like the, like such a friction because they were like, no, you, you present yourself your best in the outside world, and then when you're in your inside workplace, you relax. And so this kind of like, they would just keep these journals. Again, this was in the journal that I mentioned before, that they would keep these kinds of moments and memories and like writing through and thinking through it. And then that would pass on to somebody else. And so it was like, I don't know, these were so long ago, but I still remember them really, really clearly. And I think, again, there's this hyper competitiveness in New York. There's all these, you know, like it's quite noisy. It's quite like gruff. It's quite, you know, um, unkept. But I think with all that, people also come here with willing to be present and like willing to have contact with other people. Um, as a teacher, I think you, your original question was, what did I like about teaching here? And I liked that I could almost like create that realm, you know? And it came from definitely students coming up to me and being like, I don't think these other students deserve to be in this class because their language level isn't at my language level. I was teaching language at the time and they didn't, you know, everybody had taken an entrance test. And so some students tested much better on like formulation of language, but maybe not uh, verbal communication or things like that. And so that friction, you know, I, I was like, whoa, this is really bluntly like said, you're not guarding this at all. And this is like kind of overt ignorance, you know? And, um, and so actually in that class, that led to the educational histories. But prior to that, I just said something as stupid as having students 
share something that they do well or that they know well. I just wanted people to like recognize. And in that case, uh, I had uh, one student, the student who had come to me and been upset about that, uh, I knew the student that they were kind of targeting in their head, but you know, I was like, Whoa, okay, this is a abrupt. And for some reason I did that exercise. And when that student that they had targeted in their head, they were an older student, you know, from another country and, um, and they did their show and tell, and they sang a song and they, uh, showed some dance movements and that other student was in tears and they like raised their hand and they were like, I can't believe somebody as small in such a small body can have so much power and creation. And I was just like, well, I, I didn't expect this, but you know, it was just the answer to that kind of like, again, that's what got me kind of stuck on this loop of like, uh, allowing those moments to happen and figuring out how to do that. And I think that's, again, my favorite part about like the classroom, I think that's like how Bell Hooks thinks through it. It's like, it's these very oppressive places, but they have such great opportunity. And, you know, and I'm, I'm totally misquoting that, but I know that that's the, the realm of it, you know, it, it, it is a place that, you know, can be an equalizer uh, as far as everybody's in the same room at the same time, not how they got there or, you know, what they get out of it or, you know, the the process of that, but just that people are sharing space. Um, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Adela. I am a first year student at Teachers College Columbia University. Um, getting an MA in art and art education. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in art education already, but I'm venturing off to see if research is something that I'm interested in. Um, so one of the requirements for the art education program, depending on your um, track, is you'll be taking a field, the observations class. And although I already have a degree in art education, I've decided to take the class anyways. Um, because I wanted to see the differences in New York City and public school systems. Um, so I was very fortunate to visit a school in East Harlem. And it was um, elementary school and middle school combined. And because my focus is in art, I visited the art classroom. Um, it's a pretty small school compared to what I'm used to. Um, I taught in Atlanta and I taught in Taiwan too. And in both instances, because it's in major cities, um, my class sizes were fairly big. I think the smallest class size I had was maybe like 20 students. But um, in this school, class sizes were relatively small. Um, it could be up to like maybe 10 to 15 students at most. So that was a pretty unique experience for me. In some cases, sometimes they'd even combine classrooms to um, you know, fit the schedule because the classes were small enough to combine them. So that, that was a pretty unique experience for me to witness, um, as well as teacher aides being a thing. You know, I feel like there's a lot more resources that we have here in New York City. Um, that's something that I didn't grow up um, having a understanding of. You know, some students may need extra help and they'll have an aide. 
and you can visibly see them, but also classes just in general may have just AIDS. Um, so I think it was beneficial to see children get the support that they needed and to know that that's a possibility if we have the resources to accommodate appropriately. I will also say though, that despite coming from Atlanta, I still do see persistent segregation in the system. Um, the school that I visited was predominantly Black and Latino. And I think that says a lot about the housing situation here in New York. Um, and so, you know, we want this idea of having a diverse student population, but having a school just filled with minorities isn't enough, especially if it's one particular type of demographic. Um, we know we're not giving them a fair shot of seeing other perspectives, right? And knowing that there's a world out greater out there um, in the sense that we can all work together and having that exposure early on to know that there's other people than us, than ourselves. So yeah, I'd say that those were some pretty major, um, I guess, ideas that I hadn't explored before. Another one I think it's very worth mentioning, consider we're in New York City, is all the museums that are here. The school that I visited was pretty close to Guggenheim. It's pretty close to um, like Central Park. And so the activities that they could do, you know, do observational drawings from going outside to then going to hopping on the bus to go visit the Guggenheim Museum. Any of the institutions that we have here in New York are so rich and to have that so accessible to them is pretty insane. Um, it's, I, I interviewed some teenagers from Atlanta recently to ask how many times they vis have visited an art museum. And they're all seniors and they, they told me that they've never gone to an art museum. And so to know that back home in Atlanta, nobody, m most people in my hometown have not gone to an art museum, but to know that this is something that is a regular experience here in New York is pr pretty shocking. Um, and so I'm just thinking about how accessibility is here in New York. Something else that I noticed while observing at a New York City public school is that oftentimes when students showed that they needed extra support, whether it was having behavioral problems with the teacher and leaving the classroom without notice, being upset and leaving the classroom, um, to showing any display of conflict, the teacher made would make comments and would tell me, oh, they're just going to get sent to District 75. And I remember thinking, what is District 75? And I haven't gotten a clear answer, but it seems like it's a... My understanding is that District 75 is a place where students with disabilities go to to get the support that they need. And while I do think it is valuable for these students to get the support that they need. The reality is that when we become adults, we begin to work with other people, people who have different backgrounds from us, including people who have disabilities. And to actively separate these students is another act of showing segregation. Um, in my own opinion, obviously I'm not an expert in this field. It's not my area of focus, but I do think that it does deserve some conversations. Maybe I just had a bad understanding of what District 75 was, um, but I know 
that there are IC classes, right? Um, classes where they get the support that they need. There's aides that are in the classroom. Like I saw it in the school that I observed. But I think the comment that was made, they're just going to be sent to District 75, really stuck with me because what does that comment hold? Like it feels like there's more weight to it. And I just did not get a clear answer on what District 75 was. Um, so I think it's worth worth finding out. They recently had an immigrant student come into this school and that student doesn't know any English and was not getting the support that they needed. And so when I asked the student a question before realizing that they didn't, they didn't communicate in English, um, their peers said, oh, he doesn't speak English. And I said, oh, so who speaks to him? They're like, nobody. And so that that kind of, I, like what support is available to new students that are transferring, specifically immigrants. Um, I don't think that they're having conversations right now, or at least not thinking too heavily on it. Um, but I think that the more students that will enter under the same conditions, they'll begin to wonder, like, why aren't they getting the support? Um, and in times when the student was confused in the art classroom, you know, there was a lot of like charades is what I say to communicate, use your hands and act things out to help them understand what the task is. I, I myself, growing up was classified as being an English language learner. Um, was there the no child left behind act. And so during this period, it, there was a lot of pressures on educators to quickly teach students how to learn English so they could immediately merge into quote unquote regular classrooms and then begin testing. And so there was this pressure into learning English fairly quickly. And, you know, policies, whether they explicitly or implicitly imply, uh, everything has to be in English, right? Even if the teacher lets you do an assignment in your own language, you then have to translate it. And so I grew up with knowing that English was a priority in school. And so, although Spanish is my first language, I don't have the academic vocabulary in my first language to, um, you know, have grown in the school system. And I lived in an international corridor, and so we have students from all over. It's a place of um, mostly immigrant families and refugee families. And so I knew that we were a very special place, and I knew that I wanted to teach in this context. Um, but to really truly understand it, you know, I feel like it's really powerful. And if you have the privilege to go to these countries and at least understand some cultural understandings through there. Um, so when I went to Taiwan, I was very much putting myself back in the position of not knowing the language and trying to understand the people around me. Um, whether it was at school with the students, whether it was my coworkers and teachers in Taiwan, or whether it was, you know, outside at the night market trying to order food. Um, I was constantly understanding what it was like to not know a language and, you know, being in this position as like a foreigner. Um, and so to be back in New York City, I feel like I'm, I've gotten reminded of what it's like um, to not know a language. Um, what, uh, you know, that experience is a very small scale. There's other people, like for example, my own parents who are immigrants, like that's a very big difference. Um, I have only gotten a taste of what the experience is like. And it's made me become more aware um, 
more graceful to my students, but also has made me want to advocate more for more translanguaging policies to give them the support that they need, not only to like learn in English context, but to develop, to continue developing their own home languages. And I think um, something that I've recently have come to understand and trying to merge on my words, worlds, for example, like I know that I have family in Mexico, that's always going to be with me. I know I have family in Atlanta, that's where I grew up. I know that I've traveled to Taiwan and lived there for a year very remarkable experience and now I'm living here in New York City and so for a very long time I was very much thinking about life as being separated uh, you know I have a life in Mexico I have a life in Atlanta I have a life in Taiwan I have a life in New York but I recently started understanding that I can merge these worlds together and I'm thinking about that actively with English language learners um, how they can merge their own identities to what we're learning I, I think that's that's what I would most push for in lesson plans for English language learners is to bridge identities and to not forget where you're coming from and how to connect that to where you are now because you're both now. And so I think the museum can be a great place, right? Because art comes from all over. Uh, I think something that I've been actively thinking about is we don't want students to replicate what we're seeing. Uh, we also don't want them to appropriate what's we're seeing, especially if it's heavy topics, um, but we do want them to actively make and create a response to what they're seeing. And so, for example, if we're seeing an art piece that incorporates using gold, right, um, a specific watercoloring technique, um, a certain theme, like let's say love, for example, keeping those elements for students to continue making um, is, is, is a good start, right? Asking them the question. So this art piece displays the theme of love. How would you display themes of love? How have you seen love in your life? And so trying to bridge those together. And so saying, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna explore the same thing. We're gonna keep some of the same elements, but you have creative freedom to do whatever you'd like to do, so. all the time we have for today's episode of Big Apple Educator. I want to thank our guests for sharing their insights and perspectives with us and for their tireless work in helping to bring more creation and passion to education. Education is a journey that never truly ends. It is a lifelong pursuit of knowledge and growth and a path that leads to greater understanding and personal fulfillment. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and joining us on the journey of discovering what it is like to be a teacher in one of the most diverse and dynamic cities in the world. Thank you for listening. If you have any feedback or want to share your stories with us, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to this episode of this season's Mask Lab podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about the lab, find us at www.masklab.org. This episode was produced and edited 
by Joy Yang. The theme music is Grandma's Impala by Sarah the Instrumentalist, available on YouTube.